I was struck today uh, when I got here to the church early this morning and was praying just with the reality that God is not in need of our praise today. If we do not give God praise, if God did not have us, God would still be who God is. He would still be faithful. He would, his glory would still shine. God would still do what God wants to do. But if we do not have God... We're empty, we're void, we have no strength in our weakness. We're in desperate need of God. So we're in this series called Wired for Connection. What it means for us to be wired for connection to God and what that means as it plays itself out in every other kind of relationship. So this is the last of a six-week series, and I'm really excited about today. I have a lot to say, a lot to teach. I hope you'll have your Bibles ready to open up and to underline and take some notes. I want to start with three truths, three convictions that I believe and that I want to build the rest of this sermon on, and I hope you believe these two. Three convictions. Write these down. Number one, we are for relationships. So as a church, we're for relationships. We're for relationships with God. We are for marriage. We are for parents. We are for children. We're for racial reconciliation. We are for relationships. Now, uh, now, now for some of you who have a 15, 16, 17-year-old who may be dating someone you don't like, you don't got to be for that relationship, all right? So there, there may be some exceptions. But if you've ever been to a wedding and you were not for whoever it was getting married, something was wrong with you. Like even if you didn't believe in who, like, like these two coming together, we are rooting for them. I've never been in a hospital room of a child who was born into the world where people were not rooting for this baby and wanting this child to grow up to know the Lord and love the Lord. We are for relationships. Number two, uh, when Paul, who uh, we're going to be reading Paul today. So if you're not familiar with your Bible, Paul was this great apostle. Paul uh, wrote uh, um, half of the books of the New Testament, all right? And, and whenever Paul addresses relationships, he keeps going back to Jesus. So for Paul, when he talks about marriage or children or parents or masters or slaves, he keeps going back to Christ. And you're going to be blown away how many times he does this in Ephesians 5 and 6 as I read this in just a moment. So I want you to underline some of these places. If you don't mark in your Bible, feel free to take notes and go back and look at them later. When Paul is speaking about relationships, he believes that Jesus is the source that holds every relationship together. And without Jesus, that relationship will fall. Number three. So number one, we are for relationships. Number two, Paul, when he is talking about relationships, keeps going back to Jesus. Number three, and this is a big one, and I need you to hold on with me throughout the rest of this sermon, all right? The key to every healthy relationship is this. And I'm hesitant to even say it, all right, because um, I hope you just stick with me, all right? The key to every healthy, meaningful relationship, this is for marriage, parents, kids, racial reconciliation, employees, the key to every healthy relationship is submission. Submit. Uh, And some of you right now are thinking, all right, I'm out of here. I've heard this sermon before, but you haven't had communion yet, so you've got to stay, all right? (laughs) Um, The key to every healthy relationship is submission. Now, before I go any further, um, some of you have heard sermons, you've heard pastors and teachers and preachers, and you've heard people talk about submission in a way before that did more damage than it did good. I've heard pastors, I've heard snippets of sermons before where there are teachers of the Bible who were even giving words to women who have experienced abuse in marriages, telling them they need to stay in that relationship because the Bible says to submit to your husband. So I know this is a word that has been greatly abused in our context, but I hope to present it to you today in a way that is healthy and good and biblical and why we need this in every relationship and why it matters. 
I'm going to say some things this morning that are going to make you think. I'm going to say some things that are going to sting. I'm going to say some things about relationships today that you wish someone would have taught you 20 years ago. You wish someone would have taught you this when you were 20, 21, 22, when you were thinking about marriage, when you entered into marriage, when you became a parent. I'm going to say some things are going to sting and they're going to grieve and they're going to hurt. And I hope that we have enough grace to give. And I am asking God to speak a clear word through me today that can be hopeful and helpful and encouraging to you. So let's Let's uh, bow our heads, because God, I cannot go another word of this sermon without the church hearing me cry out to you that I cannot do the next little while without your intervention, without your power, without you speaking something through me. God, I, I know that we're in this room and there are people who have been deeply wounded by relationships, even by how people have taught certain places of the Bibles. God, will you speak and declare truth and grace in and through me today so that we may be edified and encouraged and we may become more faithful witnesses to the greatness of Jesus in the world. So God, open up our hearts and our minds to hear you today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and the church said, Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22. All right, in Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, Paul speaks about a few specific relationships. All right, and here's what he does. I want you to see this slide right here, okay? Here are the specific groups of people Paul speaks to. He does the same thing in Colossians 3 and 4. So what I've done for you on the screen is I, I, I have, okay, he speaks to wives, and he actually spends three verses, though Paul didn't like write with, he wasn't putting numbers by verses, all right? But he speaks to wives, and he spends three verses doing that. When he speaks to husbands... Is a big chunk of the text. Nine verses are spe he speaks directly to husbands. Then he spends three verses speaking to children. One verse to fathers. Some of your uh, versions will have parents. He's not speaking to parents. He's speaking specifically to dads. Then he speaks to slaves for four verses. And he speaks to masters for one. Now, just because he may speak one verse to certain people doesn't mean it's not significant. All right, There may be things in that one verse that are so loaded. Okay, These are the specific relationship relational dynamics that Paul speaks into. He addresses husbands and wives, children and dads, children and fathers, and masters and slaves. Now, what is left off? Can you think of other relationships that are left off here? Like, why would Paul speak to dads, but he won't speak to moms? Uh, he doesn't speak to siblings or grandparents or aunts or uncles or nieces or nephews or friendships or Jews and Gentiles. There are a lot of other relational dynamics. So don't think Paul right here is trying to address everyone. There are certain relationships that Paul believed that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus completely revolutionized. And these are some specific relationships that the resurrection of Jesus did something totally new through. And in all of these relationships, the one who is challenged the most are men. Men in marriage. Men when it comes to being dads. And men who were masters, because men were the ones who were masters then. Alright, so Paul speaks specifically to men, and let me walk you through this. I want to start all the way in chapter 6, verse 1. And here's what he says to children. And get ready, I want you to, to really notice. I want you to notice all the phrases that show up. Phrases like, in the Lord, as the Lord. So chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he's going to quote the Old Testament, which is something Paul doesn't do a lot. But honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And then he speaks to fathers, not to parents, specifically to dads. 
Do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke your children to anger. But instead, you bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This was, a, this was so vital for them, so important, because it was a time when the father had absolute power over the child. A father could dispose of a female child. A father could take a deformed child and drown that baby, which there are historical stories about this, and there would be no, no, no societal, no criminal consequences for dads. They had absolute power over their kids. To use them, whatever they wanted to do with the child, the father had absolute power over them. So what Paul speaks to the father is this. You do not provoke your children to anger. So though it was dads in, in those times who were usually the ones in the workforce, don't you come home and take out your hard life or your stress upon your children. In fact, what he says is you bring them up in the instructions of the Lord. That dad, you take upon yourself responsibility that you are pouring into and you are teaching and you are keeping the commands of God in front of your children at all times. And then Paul speaks to slaves and to masters. And I know sometimes what we've done is we have made this into employees. And there are some principles that carry over into the workplace today. There's some principles of what Paul says. Here's specifically what he says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. You serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each, of, each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And then he says this to masters in verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, there is no one who is more for women and children than Jesus. Jesus gave women and children prominence. He gave them voice. He gave them status, equality. And though sometimes we read Paul as if he was almost anti-women and maybe children, what I want to help you see today is Paul was for women and children too. He believed that the resurrection of Jesus gave voice in the spirit of God to women to empower them. Now, the reason Paul, I, Paul thought that Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime. Paul thought that Jesus would return sometime soon. So I think that is why you don't have Paul going after like this big systematic form of slavery. So he didn't go after the whole institution. But he did, what he did want to do is call slaves and let them know that, hey, the image of God God is in you. The Spirit of God is on you. And here's how you need to behave in your slavery. And for masters, you have got to treat your slaves as if the image of God is in them. This is social revolution. Now, because Paul spends the majority of his time speaking to husbands and wives, I want to spend a little time on this too. Go all the way back to verse 22, okay? Chapter 5, verse 22. When Paul starts talking about relationships, he begins with the wives. And here's what he says. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. A show of hands. How many of you would say, this is your favorite passage in all of the Bible? All right. So <laughs> hopefully no hand went up, all right? Now, how many of you would say, this is one of your least favorite passages in the Bible? A show of hands. I've talked to people before, and they're like, man, especially women, I cannot wait to see Paul one day in heaven. I got some things I want to say to him, all right? Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, here's the thing. If you were a woman... 
and you're in the church of Ephesus, and you're hearing this for the first time, here would have been their response. Even those with the most dominant personalities, even the women who, who knew that there was something greater in them, all right? The response to what Paul says in verse 22, 23, and 24 would have been like this. Tell us something we don't know. That's just how things were in those times. So whether you were a woman or a man, and you heard Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 in that time, in that culture, your response would have been, all right, yeah. Yeah, we, we know that's how the system's set up. I mean, wives submit to your husbands. The husband is the head of the wife. We, we know that to be true. Tell us something we don't know. But what comes next is what they did not expect to come. Because they lived in a time where women were... I, I can't really think of a better word. Women were like commodities. They could be used, abused, neglected. A man could divorce a wife, but in almost every part of first century culture, a woman could not divorce a man. The men had complete authority over the entire family. So for women to hear 22 through 24, their response would have been, tell us something we don't know. But in verse 25, Paul begins to say stuff that they did not expect to come. Here's what he says. Husbands, love your wives. This is the word agape. This is not just how you feel. This is what you do. Husbands, you love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up, up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And in Greek culture, men love their bodies, all right? Just as you love your own body, you love your wife. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it, they nurture, they care for their own body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The men would have never seen this one coming. Um, back when Casey and I were, were newlyweds, there was one Saturday afternoon, and we, did, we didn't have kids at the time, and the Nebraska Cornhuskers were on TV, and I, I have a few sport teams, and I, it, it, there's been times in my life it's been like idolatry. It was a Saturday afternoon. We were living in Abilene, Texas. I was watching a game, and we lived in Abilene, which is way out in West Texas, and it does not rain much at all in Abilene, and when it does... Like the weatherman, the meteorologist comes on and basically like interrupts whatever's on TV and basically like des describes to people what rain is, all right? So I'm watching this game and boom, it starts to rain outside. And sure enough, this meteorologist comes on the TV, completely takes the game off to show cl clouds coming through and describing what rain is. I was livid. I was so furious because they didn't even give me like the top right corner, you know, where they could put the game up there in just a little box. I didn't even get that. This went on for like 20 minutes. I was livid. I was, I was so mad. I called the local news station <laughs> and they answered. And I asked to speak to the meteorologist and they were like, well, he's, he's actually like on broadcast. And I'm like, if the phone is cordless, take it to him. All right. We got to get this guy off. I need my game back on. And the fruit of the Spirit had completely left my body. I was, this, I was a man who, who I knew I did not want to become. And Casey was like, Josh, I think you need to sit down. Why don't we turn the TV off for just a little while? You need to take some deep breaths. 
and then we can turn the game back on and see if it's there. And I'm like, no, we need to keep the game on. And she's like, no, I think you really need to chill for a minute. And then I said this, and I was 95% joking and 5% just upset with the entire 30 minutes that was going on. And I said, Ephesians 5.22 says, wives submit to their husbands. <laughs> and... And Casey looked at me, and the look she gave me basically said, there is nothing more dangerous than a preacher who proof texts. All right, that was like the face she gave me. And then Casey said this. I'm glad you know that part of the Bible, but if you read a few more verses, you would see that it says, husbands, you treat your wives like Jesus treats the church, and you are not treating me right now like Jesus treats the church. And in that moment, hey, I don't need clapping in this moment, all right? <laughs> In the moment, I was like, why did I not marry an atheist? Someone who just doesn't know the Bible at all, you know. Like, don't you get Jesus as you and me right now. You read Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. What Paul says to husbands, you love your wives. You cherish your wives and you love them. Just like Jesus loved the church and he was willing to lay down his life for that church. I've talked with so many people who I know, husbands, who would take a bullet for their wives, but they are not making decisions to live for their wives. And, and to love, the bar has been raised. Like Paul is raising the bar. Like for men, you love your wives, not for them. There aren't a lot of Old Testament commands about husbands loving wives. You look in the Old Testament, there aren't a lot of these fathers that we honor and that show up in Ephesians 11. David, Abraham, Moses, Noah, the list goes on. You don't have a lot of these people who, who modeled what it means to love a wife. Yet here is Paul saying, when it comes to what Jesus has done for you in your life, you love your wife just like Jesus loves the church and is willing to lay down his life for her. Now here's the question, okay? Or here's the statement. For, for men in the room who are husbands... The bar has to be raised for you. That you love your wife in a way that you love her so much that you are willing every single day to deny yourself and you take up your cross daily, which means you choose to die to yourself every single day so that your wife can have life, find life, thrive in life. Now, for women who are wives, this is what you need to pray for in your husband. For women who are not married, this is what you need to be looking for in whoever it is treating you uh, in a relationship that may lead to a marriage one day. Because if a, if a man is not treating you like the church before marriage, don't think that marriage is automatically going to change how he treats you after. Um, yeah, you can clap for that part. Okay, that was, yeah. <clears throat> um, now, the, the call for husbands to love wives was radical. I don't think the men in that time would have ever seen that coming, but it's not the most revolutionary thing Paul says in Ephesians 5. To love a wife is not the most revolutionary thing. Let me show you something, okay? In chapter 5, verse 22, the way it shows up in the Greek... The word submit is not there. Here's how it reads. It's like an incomplete sentence. Can we show this on the screen? Okay, here's what it says. In Ephesians 5.22, this is straight from the Greek, okay? So ancient manuscripts, this is what it says. Wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. In the Greek, submit does not show up in verse 22. And some of you are looking at me right now and you're like, that is what I've been waiting for my whole life. That that word isn't there. Josh, you're my favorite preacher. You should get a raise. We love what you just said, okay? All right, but don't, don't get too excited yet, all right? It's an incomplete sentence and the word submit isn't there because it's what happens before it. In verse 21, here's what it says. Submit to one another. Submit to everyone out of reverence for Christ. Now, 
Some of your Bibles, you're looking at them right now. Verse 21 shows up in Ephesians 5, and then there's a subtitle, and then there's verse 22. Whoever it was putting that together was probably working out their best understanding of the Bible, but they completely got this one wrong. I don't think it's going to keep them out of heaven one day, all right? But verse 21, this is, this is like Greek, some, some forms of Greek literature. This is what they would do. They would make a statement, a bold statement, a foundational statement. And then the verb that is used in that verse would be implied and applied to whatever came after it. So in verse 21, Paul is making this broad, huge, powerful, foundational statement about all relationships. You submit to everyone out of reverence for Christ. And then every other relationship that he talks about in the verses to come, come under that verse right there. You submit to everyone out of reverence for Christ. And then after that, as wives, to your husbands, as to the Lord, there is submission. And then through all of this is asked to the Lord, just as, as you do to Jesus. This is, what we, this is what we do for each other. The bar has been raised for the husbands, for the men who were in that crowd. For, this is revolutionary for them. This was a game changer because the men were being challenged and encouraged. And now through the resurrection of Jesus, you were called to love your wives just like Jesus loves the church. And you were called to submit to your wives as well. Game changer. This was huge. Paul speaks to marriage because in those times and even today, marriage is the great witness to God's faithfulness. Now, let me speak this word just real quick, okay? Um, not everyone was made for marriage or marriage is not for everyone. And in the church, there are times where we have made marriage like the crowning piece of maturity in God. Marriage isn't for everyone. There are some people who are single and it's not that you're in the minor leagues and one day maybe you'll get to the major leagues. You are loved by God and cherished by God right where you are. I think churches are healthy whenever they have life groups or small groups or dinner groups when there's always an odd number chair in the group where it's not just room for husbands and wives but for single people to, to be included in that community as well. Let me say this too. Every, every married couple is not meant to have kids. And there are times where we look at married couples and we think, well, if you don't have children, you don't want children, then you must be selfish, all right? Um, there are some people who just, they don't, they don't, they chose not to have kids. I bet you can think of some married people before who had kids and they should have never had kids, you know what I'm saying? Don't point fingers. Um, real quick to the church, for younger people and single people, Every time you go up to them to ask when marriage is going to happen, an angel loses its wings, all right? That's in the Bible, so, okay? And every time you go up to a, young, a younger married couple and you ask them when babies are going to come, you have no clue kind of, the kind of salt you're often pouring into wounds, so stop it, all right? I don't care even if your grandparents were grandkids. Quit, because you don't know what kind of pain may be going on there or what kind of choices they're wrestling with. Now, with that said, um, the primary family dynamic that God set up to sustain and to continue life was for a husband and wife to come together in marriage, in a covenant, in faithfulness, and the babies would come from that, would carry, that would carry on generation after generation, okay? There are times we've got the order wrong when children have come and then marriage, there are times, even today, there are children who are, who are not being raised by mom and dad. There are children being raised by uh, grandparents or two moms or two dads or children who are raised by aunts and uncles or, or foster parents. And, and here's what's so cool about God is none of that catches God off guard or catches him by surprise. God is working through a lot of different relational dynamics 
to speak truth and grace into the children of the world. God loves them. God is for them. The, but, but, but here's what has happened in our culture and in the church is we have made the primary family relational dynamic the relationship between parents and children, and it was never meant to be. Okay, and here's, here's why, okay? The primary family dynamic is for husband and wife. That is the ultimate relationship. Now, for the single people in the room who are hustling for your kids, we are for you. We want you to thrive. I feel your pain. I pray for you. I'm grateful for you. And, and we need to raise our children to look at what a relationship between a husband and wife needs to be one day and point them to those kind of models. How many times have you known people who were, who were married, and they thought, and it was in a, in a toxic place, and they thought if we can just bring a kid into the relationship, maybe things could be healed, and maybe things could get better. Anytime we bring children into a toxic relationship, like, why would you ever do that? Uh, and whenever, it, sometimes because we make the parent-child relationship the ultimate, uh, divorce rates, when a family is an empty nest, they, they skyrocket, they go up. Because if we are treating our children as the center of the universe and as the primary relationship, and then they go off to college, sometimes husbands and wives are, are, are looking at each other saying, I, I don't know how to live with you anymore. It's been 25 or 30 years and it's just been us in the house. How do we do this? The primary relationship since the very beginning was for the husband and wife to be the ultimate. This is one of the reasons Casey and I take a trip every year without the kids. It's not just for us. We want our boys to know mommy and daddy took time every year to leave you behind because they are going to be together forever. I look at my kids sometimes. And I'm like, true, Noah, I love you. I cherish you. I, I want to nurture you. I care about you. But we are raising you to get 18 and 19 and to go thrive in the world. Me and mom are staying together forever, all right? We're raising you to get up out of this house, and, and we're going to keep on going in this house. There are times people come up to Casey and I, and they're like, how in the world can you leave your kids for more than one or two nights? And, and we do everything we can not to start off laughing, all right? Not because we want to belittle people, but because our response is, uh, it's kind of easy. Like, we, we pull up to Grandma and Grandpa's house. We slow down to five miles per hour. We throw the backpack out the window. We've taught our kids how to just jump out and roll in the grass. We throw my parents the deuce, and boy, we are out, all right? <clears throat> but the husband and wife, the marriage, the marriage remains. It's there forever for the church. The primary, ultimate goal is not for parents to only focus on kids. It's for, the, for kids to understand what a healthy, faithful marriage covenant is to look like. Let me hit you with a few things of where we need to change in our culture and, and even in the church. We fixate so much on trying to find the right person. We want to find the right person, find the right person. We, need, we just want to go places and try to find the right person. Okay, and often what happens is this. We end up in a relationship where we think this might be the right person and we allow things to escalate and to move quicker than they ever should, where we begin to do things that should only be for marriage in a relationship because we think it may be the right person. Or we think we have the right person, but things are a little difficult, but let's go ahead and get married, and marriage will fix whatever issues were there before. Weddings do not fix people. Mark Taylor, where are you? Mark, are you in the room? Mark's not in the room. I just totally put him on the spot, all right? Weddings don't fix people. They never have. However, someone's like before a marriage is going to probably be how they are 
after the marriage. Weddings don't fix people. We fixate on trying to find the right person. Andy Stanley says that, that you, you can put a caveman in a tux, but guess what? He's still a caveman. You can take a caveman out of a cave, but often the cave remains in him. What we need to fixate on as a church, what we need to focus on and pray on isn't that people will find the right person. It's that we will become the right person. It will focus on becoming the right person so that when the right person comes along, we have been working on ourselves to become the kind of person that God wants us to be. Um, Oh my goodness, I'm about to upset some people, all right? The way this works in life is not like The Bachelor makes this out to be. The way to go about relationships isn't that you find 20 and you work your way through all of them hoping to find the right one. It's that we honor God in a way where we are trying to become the right kind of person. And we do things at God's timing. And not only do we wait for God's timing, but we honor God's way as we wait for God's timing, which means a commitment to purity and faithfulness and self-control and keeping the bar high. Number two, we've got to elevate and lift up covenant. We've got to elevate and lift up what covenant and faithfulness means, that to love someone, we have made love into a feeling, and love is so much more than a feeling. Love is what we do. There's only one time where Casey was furious at a sermon I preached. There's been times she hadn't liked them. There was only one time she was livid. I got home, saw her in the kitchen, often on Sundays, we, we kind of connect after that, and I'm like, baby, what'd you think? Like, what, what, were, what, what hit you? What were your favorite parts? There were times when we had, our kids were young, and she's like, I, I got nothing out of anything today, all right? There's just kids pulling on me the whole time. I, I no clue what you said. And, and, but there was only one time that, I mean, she was like in my face. She was so mad. And she said, you told a story today, and I do not want you to ever tell that story again. So I'm about to tell it to you right now, all right? Um, And here's the story I told. I know of a church where there was a couple in their church, and the man was away on a business trip in the Northeast. And while he was on the business trip, he embraced a coworker before they went, uh, before they left for the night. He embraced her. They hugged a little too long. They kissed. It stopped after the kiss. He called home, confessed what he did. And the wife said, I need you on the first plane tomorrow morning. You need to come home. And when, when he was on the plane, he didn't know what to expect when he got home. And when he arrived at the airport, the kids were outside and they were holding up a banner that said, welcome home, daddy. And then they got to the house and they put the kids to bed. And then uh, she had prepared communion for him, the bread and the wine. And they took communion together. And then she took him by the hand and took him back to the wedding bed. And and I told that story on a Sunday about the power and beauty of reconciliation. And I got home and Casey was like, don't you ever tell that story again. And here's why. If you ever put your lips on another woman, communion will be the last thing waiting on you when you get home. There ain't gonna be no body of Christ waiting on you. There ain't gonna be no fruit of the vine. And I sure ain't taking your hand leading you to some wedding bed. She said, I love the point about reconciliation, but don't you make that kind of reconciliation out to sound so easy when it is so hard. And why don't you use your voice? 
when you tell stories about marriage and stories about unfaithfulness to point back to faithfulness and covenant. So that's why I've never told that story before today. When we lower the bar in relationships and what we expect in relationships, and when we lower the bar, the moral compass goes with it. We lower the bar, the moral compass goes with it. We've got to elevate and lift up covenant and faithfulness. Third thing, focalism. There's a word, focalism, focal, I-S-M, and here's what it means. It's the brain's tendency to magnify one thing to the exclusion of everything else. And this is so vital and important for relationships. This is what happens when you're in a restaurant and you see your food come out and you no longer care about conversations anymore, right? Because you see the food, you're focused on one thing. Uh, we, we, uh, what often happens in relationships is we, we become focused on something. And because we live in a time where there's been this sexual revolution that the church has to get ahead of and in front of, what happens is we begin to think that the physical is what a relationship is about. When I meet with people and I hear their testimonies and what they have walked through, hands down, deepest regrets in our lives have something to do with sexual sin. When we are focused and the brain is magnified on one thing and the exclusion of everything else, relationships can fall apart. When we only focus on what our spouse has done wrong and we let that magnify and grow, it can form all kinds of bitterness that was never meant to be there. Here's the deal, and I think here's why Paul is speaking specifically to the wives and really to husbands calling them to love is Paul knew, even though he was never married, Paul knew that the goal of marriage and the goal of the family is not for you to fall in love. It's for you to learn how to sustain love. All right, so she doesn't know what I'm going to do, but Casey, I want you to come join me just for the end of the sermon, all right? I told Casey she doesn't have a speaking role. She just needs to come up. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to do anything that we regret in this moment. Do you care which chair you're in? Okay. <clears throat> I want to, to say a few things to you, and I want the church to hear them, all right? Because vows, and as we talk about marriage, is not just for two people to talk about. It's for the public, okay? Um, there are arranged marriages happening all throughout the world today. It's gone on for years, and it seems to have worked. And I'm just curious. You can give nonverbals. Do you think your family would have chosen me? All right, okay. <clears throat> all right. <laughs> when I was wearing like my Tupac t-shirt and my hat backwards, all right. Okay, seriously, um, you remember our rehearsal night? Okay, we had like, there were about 100 people there. It turned into this worship service. It was awesome. One of the most memorable nights of my life. I said something to you that night, and here's what I said. That I've worn a lot of titles in my life. I've been a son, a brother, a nephew. I've been a cutter at CC's. I've been a preacher, a minister. I've worn a lot of titles. But next to being a disciple of Jesus, there is no title that I'm more proud to wear or honored to wear than to be your husband. I still believe that almost 16 years later. <clears throat> Here's something I need to remind you of. We've said this to each other in the past. I want the church to hear it today. You do not complete me. You never have. I know when we uh, got engaged and we started dating, Jerry Maguire had just come out a few, few years before, and there's that, that scene where he's like, you complete me. And I remember some of our friends were like getting engaged, and that's what they would say to each other in the wedding. It's like, hey, you complete me. Casey, you do not complete me. And there have been times in my life, times in our marriage, when I've had to repent to the Lord of idolatry because I can never expect you to fulfill for me something that only Jesus can fulfill. 
you don't complete me, I don't complete you, Jesus does. We complement each other, all right, but we do not complete each other. The word that the Lord has given me in our marriage this year um, for our marriage and what I need to be for you is, is not just that I love you. It's the word honor. And the way I, I think about what I need to be for you and the way I try to teach other men when I am with them is to honor a wife. is not just how you treat her when you are with her. It's how you talk about her when you're with other people. And I want to honor you in any way I think about you and talk about you with others. And here's the last thing. There are times people ask, how does marriage work? How does your marriage with Casey work? Like, how do you guys make it work? And my response to them, and my response to you, is that I'm not so much concerned about how marriage works. It's that I want you to know that you have a spouse who is working at the marriage, okay? Uh, That I want, we're about to be married 16 years in May. I want year 16 and 17 to be the best years of marriage in your opinion, not mine. Now, when it comes to submission, here's how it works. Thanks for hanging on with me because I know this is going, going long. Um, <clears throat> wives submit to their husbands. Before that is that we submit to everyone out of reverence for Christ. And the way we think about marriage and the way I want to preach marriage and teach marriage is not that the man is over the woman and it's not that you do what I tell you to do or we move wherever I want us to move. Um, We believe in mutual submission. So we submit to one another. We have become one and we are working with God of what it means to lead our family and to be a witness to the world of the love of God. So mutual submission is we are submitting to one another. And this is why this is so important for marriages and for all relationships. Submission is this. It is not that you become a doormat where you let other people walk all over you. Submission is that I reach a point and my relationship with God, that I am so confident in who God has created me to be, that I am going to leverage everything I have so that the people in front of me experience and have life because of our interaction. So for you, I want to leverage my influence, my voice, my power, my energy so that you can thrive and have life. I want to leverage whatever I have, whoever I'm in front of, Wherever I am, I want to leverage the energy and the, the, the personality that God has given me so that someone else can experience life. So today, if you have never submitted your life to Jesus as the Lord of your life, it is the best decision you will ever make. You cannot make it through life without him. And if you are a marriage, if you're in a marriage today, I hope I've given you something to talk about. If you're not, I hope I've given you a healthier way to see the word submission. I want to ask for elders and prayer leaders to go where you are to receive people for prayer. I want to ask us as a church to stand. And Casey, do you mind praying over us before um, will you pray for us? And, and then Kip's going to lead us in a couple of songs. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you for your wisdom and that you didn't put us on this earth to be alone. But you wired us internally for connection with others. 
thank you, Lord, for surrounding us with a great cloud of witnesses that have gone on before us, that have taught us how to love well. Others that stand next to us, shoulder to shoulder, who we're going through life with, that we are wired to connect to. And Lord, thank you for showing us how to love each other. You did it so well through Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to to lay down our pride, to lay down our desire to be right and to be the best and to be the most important person in the room, to lay that down and yield to the other. Yield to our friends, yield to our coworkers, yield to our spouses, that we would say, you've got the floor. You be the most important person in the room, and I will support you in doing it. Although we cannot do that when we are puffed up with pride, and so I, I ask you, Lord, to help remind us that humility is, is so important, and humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less often. So, Lord, help us to lay down our lives, just like you taught us to do, lay down our lives, not because we're less than, but because you live inside of us. But, Lord, to lay down our lives to make someone else better. So, Lord, I pray that, as you know, that is not easy. So, Lord, I pray that you and everyone in this room, that you will, that you will strengthen us. Strengthen us with the only strength that provides that kind of ability. That, Lord, you will empower us to live for another. Because when we signed up with you, when we signed up to become a Christian, we signed up to live for another person. And, Lord, that's for you and the people around us. So, Lord, give us that strength to love moment by moment in your power and your strength. Lord, thank you for my husband. Thank you so much for giving me a man that longs after you, that we can run this life together. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. All to Jesus.